0: Recovery Elevator, episode 16. Welcome to the Recovery Elevator podcast. My name is Paul. Thank you so much for joining us. According to my Recovery Elevator sobriety app on my iPhone, I have been sober for nine months. That is June 7th. Nine months ago, on September 7th, I stopped drinking. I quit. Call me a quitter. I quit drinking. And so far... I've been successful at it for nine months, and today's podcast is about rehab and how close I was to going to rehab, but I didn't quite go to rehab, but I made a very important step in going to rehab, and I'll talk about that in just a second. On episode 16, I am going to interview Lee Pepper from Foundations Recovery Network, In a previous podcast episode, I made an attempt to explain how amazing of a resource this is while in recovery, or if you're thinking about quitting drinking, but I didn't really do it justice. So through a mutual introduction, I met Lee Peppers, and he's on the show today. He's going to tell us all about Foundations Recovery Network. He's going to talk to us about the success rates of rehab. When is the right time to go? Do you have to hit a bottom to go to rehab? All kinds of stuff. These are questions that I have been asked personally, and I've had the questions myself. Do I need to go to rehab? I remember asking people in AA meetings afterward when they would mention they'd been to rehab, I'd go up and, and, and tap them on the shoulder and say, hey, what was the trigger? What 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 finally made you go? Because sure, there is a stigma around being an alcoholic, but for me, it was like admitting complete defeat if I had to go to rehab. Hey guys, I'm going to be MIA for the next four weeks. I'm, I'm going to go to my grandma's house at, at, at the lake. No, I would have to say I'm going to rehab, but there's nothing wrong with going to rehab. In fact, if you can do it financially and B, you've got the time to take off work, you got to do it. You have to do it. There's too much on the line. And let me tell you about September 7th, the day I quit drinking and September 6th, the night before, how I was so close to going to rehab, but I made the most important step before going to rehab. I was ready to go. What I mean by that is a lot of times people go to rehab, but it's not their choice. They go for a spouse. They go for a friend. They go because their boss wants them to go. They go to appease somebody else's demands. But I, on September 6th, I hit my knees. I wanted to go for myself. And here's what happened. The summer of 2014 was probably the worst summer of my entire life. In fact, it was. No thought there needed. I was sick and tired of all the fighting, trying to control it, telling myself, I got this. I'd said that to myself way too many times. I didn't have any accountability. Every other morning of that summer, it seemed like I would wake up and be like, I am done drinking, and I got this, right? And then it'd be 7 p.m., 8 p.m., and I'd I'd be drunk or headed to the liquor store. And that happened over and over and over. I was at an event where I probably should not have left, but I was drunk. I had driven there drunk, and I was going to drive home but a light bulb or something went off. I just realized this is so insane. I'm probably gonna get a DUI on the way back down. I'm probably gonna get my second DUI in two months. In fact, I was driving around with a broken tail light, right? Now I've got two very expensive pieces of paper on the wall. One of them is called a master's degree. I'm an intelligent human being. I'm driving around drunk with a broken tail light. And this was my justification I was gonna use gravity to assist me. If I saw blinking lights behind me or a cop car behind me, I was slowly gonna turn off and just let the uphill slow me down. I wasn't gonna tap those brakes because then the cop behind me, he'd know my brake lights out. Easy way to pull me over. And I know what the penalties are for your second, third, and fourth DUI. It's not like the officer would have come up to my window and be like, well, sir, you got another DUI and you're going to jail. And I would have been like, wow, sir, I am as surprised as you are. I had no idea. I mean, I I knew exactly what was going on and it just didn't matter. And that's really why legal repercussions, they don't do anything for an alcoholic. We'll drink and drive no matter what. But like I said, something happened. I had to get away and make a change. I reached out. I think this was the first time I ever made a phone call really, really asking for help. And it was a dear friend who stepped up to the plate. She drove up to the location where I was at, picked me up, and drove me back down the mountain. I was in the car, crying. And I'm not talking sniffling. I was bawling because I had lost I had my butt whooped. I felt defeated. I had lost this battle against alcohol that I had been fighting, which seemed like for an eternity. And I don't like to lose. I have a lot of pride. I rarely like to admit defeat, but I was so beat down that I was sobbing, sobbing because I knew I had to go to rehab. And here's what happened I pulled out the phone and I made another phone call. So I called my dad and it rings and rings and rings. Don't leave a message, I call my mom. Rings and rings and rings. I call my brother, nothing either. Rings and rings and rings. And I continue that cycle. Call my mom, call my dad, call my mom, call my brother. I was gonna keep calling until they picked up, whether I was calling for 10 hours, it, it didn't matter. I needed help and I just kept calling. And after about 10 minutes of sniffling and sobbing and, and just calling repeat after repeat, my dad answered. And I could hear something in his voice right away. I was like, hey, dad. He was like, hey, Paul, how, how's it going? And I knew that something was on his mind at that time. And I said, what's going on, dad? What took you so long to answer, right? This is all about me, dad. What's going on? Why aren't you picking up the phone? I... Paul, I'm in a lot of hurt right now, and I need you. But I could hear in his voice, and I thought I'd ask, what's up? He's like, yeah, we are here on the top of the lodge at Snowbird. We're spreading Ellen's ashes. Your brother's here, your mom's here, and Ellen's family's here, and I completely spaced it. I was supposed to go to Snowbird, Utah, where we spent a lot of Thanksgiving and Christmas dinners with Ellen, a genuine family friend who I consider family. She passed away way too early, and they were spreading her ashes, so after telling me that, my dad goes, yeah, well, what's uh, what's up with you, Paul? I was holding back the tears. I was still crying at that moment. But I decided as no matter how selfish I am and the moment was all about me, I decided that I could wait one night, right? I could let them have their moment. And then tomorrow, I'm guessing my alcohol problem would still be there, despite my mind would probably tell me the next morning that I got it again. So I said, okay, no, no, that's all right. That's all right. Have fun and, and tell Ellen's family that I'm sorry for the loss. I'll call you tomorrow. And that's how the night ended. But I had made that step for myself. I made the call. That I was ready to go to rehab for myself. I was done fighting. I gave up. I surrendered. I guess you could say that was part of my bottom. Thank goodness it wasn't in a jail cell or my car was not in a ditch. I just reached such a low mental point that I was sick and tired of being so sick and tired. The next morning, I woke up feeling a lot different. Sure, I was hungover, felt like crap, but something was different. I went on a quick hike. Physically, didn't last long, but I got outside in nature. And then I went to three AA meetings that day. I went to three the next day. I went to three the following day. And I basically went to three to two to one to two to three to two to three back to one. And that's, that's what it was. And here I am nine months later, but I reached a point of desperation where I was done. I surrendered. We've been taught in society and especially with this whole beer drinking culture, alcohol culture, don't give up, keep fighting no pain and no gain. You got this. Well, that you got this mentality almost got me killed several times. I'm hoping I don't ever have to go to rehab and I'm taking this thing one day at a time. But if I ever do, I'm going to call up Mr. Lee Pepper, who is going to join us for just a second and get his insight because he's a really good guy.
1: Lee, how are you? I'm doing great, Paul. Thank you for having me this afternoon.
0: Absolutely. Thank you for taking the time, Lee. Now, recovery elevator, Lee is not an alcoholic or is he he's not in recovery. However, Lee works for the Foundation's recovery network. And I briefly, briefly touched based upon this wonderful, Resource in recovery, but I did not do it justice and that is why I was put in touch with Lee to have him here And he can tell us more about foundations recovery but first off Lee give us a little bit of background about you how you got into this and then just go right into telling us what the Foundations recovery network is all about
1: Well, thank you so much Paul. Well, you know, I could probably wax on for an hour here just about my personal background but you know basically and headhunter reached out to me and said listen I, re- I want you to meet uh, this company called foundations they are looking for a chief information officer and I, I think that they would-, would like to meet you And so I came over and met the team met Rob and Richard um, who are still here with us and had a really great conversation and what got me passionate about working for foundations was they had this untapped digital uh, opportunity they were they had some really good websites uh, they had a pretty good business development team and their message was bringing co-occurring disorders into the forefront, Uh, treating patients who have a mental health issue that could be trauma, could be depression, anxiety, uh, in conjunction with an addiction. And so this this focus on dual diagnosis really spoke to me, and I really saw it as an opportunity to apply what I had learned over 20-plus years in healthcare and then also with the digital marketing aspect, where we could really attack this problem. And so uh, I've been at Foundations for seven years. I now, I now work in the capacity as a chief marketing officer. And we were so fortunate four years ago to kick off a social movement called Heroes in Recovery that has really become the focus of our efforts uh, in this community.
0: Let's talk a little bit more about Heroes in Recovery. I understand it was founded in 2011. So tell us more about Heroes in Recovery.
1: Yeah, absolutely. You know, the, the idea, you know, came to me you know, four years ago, it was during Halloween time, and uh, I was on a long run, which I'm, I'm apt to do these days. I've gotten older. I've gotten into running, and I was having these uh, these uh, flashes of, of kids in in costumes, and we went back to the office. I went back to the office, and I started working on some ideas for some uh, a creative piece, and um, this idea of people in recovery in – Costumes, and then that became heroic costumes. And then we worked with an agency in, in Greenville, South Carolina, called Brains on Fire, and they were able to kind of take all this gobbledygook of ideas. And they said, really, what you need um, is to create a movement. And about that time, we were reflecting on Betty Ford's life because uh, she had just passed away. And when she died in her obituary, they started off with her impact on breast cancer. And I did not. I remember that she had been one of the first Americans to share her personal struggle with breast cancer and in 1974 that was something that wasn't talked about publicly and then it was two years later that she shared her personal struggle with alcoholism and it really hit us hard that breast cancer, you know, 40 years later Breast cancer awareness is a national movement in this country. Every kid has been to a breast cancer awareness walk, you know, pink ribbon walk. The NFL is wearing pink shoes, and the impact on that is called the Betty Ford blip. When Betty Ford talked about it a few years later, you saw the decline in deaths associated with breast cancer, and it was all due to awareness. But when you look at alcoholism and drug addiction, um, we're still there's still that shame and that stigma that negatively impacts. Uh, people who are suffering and that's when we dedicated ourselves to create a movement Heroes in Recovery where we could focus on people sharing their stories of recovery and the idea was that if we could get thousands of Americans to share their story when you come to that website or come to one of our 6k races you're gonna find a little piece of you in one of those stories and hopefully those stories will lower that that shame factor that stigma and that will allow you to then you know seek treatment
0: I'm on the same team as you. I think it's a very noble and valiant effort, but I got to say it's a tough one and it's an uphill battle for you. I'm just thinking you said, you know, the NFL has (laughs) breast cancer, pink socks on and things like that. I don't think you're going to get a wristband that says beat the booze while at the same time Budweiser has a sponsorship banner on the side of the sideline. That's extremely difficult. So, Tell me about just the strategies that you've had to do because, to be honest, you can't use the same thing with breast cancer awareness. What worked for them is not going to work for shredding the shame or beating the stigma of an alcoholic just because 9 out of 10 people or drinkers are normal drinkers. And I don't know if there's a statistic that 9 out of 10 people who have breast cancer can normally live with breast cancer it's a little bit different of a beast, but I'm right there with you. We need to get rid of the social stigma. So tell me more about your strategies. So just tell me more about that.
1: Sure. Well, I think, you know, I I appreciate discussion on this. I believe that when you look at where gay marriage is in this country, where you look at where AIDS awareness is in this country, People were saying the exact same thing you just said about recovery 10 or 15 years ago. So we don't have all the answers, but what we know is that we do have to be vocal. We have to share our stories, um, and, and I want to be clear that you know everything that we're trying to do, that anonymity does not mean secrecy. We do not want to violate any of the sacred covenants that go on in the rooms, uh, but we do want to give folks who want to share and feel empowered to share to share their stories and it's not just the individual person in recovery it's not just the addict it's the family member uh, it's the CEO who owns a company that provides benefits for their employees and allows them to, to have time off to go and seek treatment it's the grandparents who watch the grandkids uh, it's the brothers and sisters who are involved it's the medical professionals that dedicate their life of service so I believe that it is something that ca- that we can address effectively do we have all the answers no you know one of the things since I've worked in this field Paul I've become very aware. I was at a I was at a project management meeting last night, actually, and you know, they're at this meeting. They were talking about an event they're going to have, and it was going to be you know at a local bar. And it kind of amused me that there's that there is that lack of sensitivity to that room because in that room, statistics will sh- will say that there are thirty or forty percent of that audience is in recovery, and that they're probably active in the rooms. But yet, because we have been so silent in this, we haven't educated the public. So I do believe there's an opportunity to educate uh, big groups like the NFL. And I think advertisers will be sensitive, too. And I think that when you look at all the different groups that advertisers go after, uh, nobody has figured out how to speak to those people in recovery, and I want to applaud Amer- American Express. They are one of the first companies that I've seen recently, and they actually just received an award from young people in recovery with their spot they ran during the Super Bowl this year, where they showed that young woman or middle-aged woman who owns a restaurant in Denver, and they listed her as somebody in recovery. That's one of the first times that I've seen a commercial and a company like American Express reaching out to those people in recovery. So I, I think the I think the world is open to change. We just cannot afford to sit here quietly. We have to be part of that change.
0: Lee, there is a hero. Talk about a hero in recovery. There's this guy. He did the unspeakable at the time of. I forget his name, but he actually walked on the moon and his name was Buzz Aldrin, but he also was an alcoholic and he was not afraid and he was getting rid of the social stigma. And this is like in the sixties, he was very open about it. Talk to me like what happened from the 1960s. I know it wasn't just buzz. There was like five other people. What happened? There was like a huge gap from then till, till now. And, and, and tell me more about that.
2: Well, I think, um, you know, being born, being born in 69, you know, obviously I, I was very, very, very young and not really exposed, you know, to the culture that was going on. But I, but I would say that probably a lot of that was being impacted by our health care system. It really wasn't until recently that most people could utilize private insurance to pay for some type of treatment. And I think our challenge has been getting resources And getting innovative approaches to treatment because probably back in the 60s and 70s, a lot of it was hospital based or, you know, if you were lucky to find a good group, a good 12 step group that you could get in with, but there wasn't a consistent approach. And I think it's very similar to what you've seen with uh, cancer. You know, now, and probably even with AIDS, you know, in, in the late 80s and early 90s, you know, once there's a focus and the medical community can come in and, and, and the larger social community can come in, we start to get some progress, you know, moving. And so we're not there yet with recovery, but I believe that we're on the right track. We're, we're getting uh, with parity and with the Affordable Care Act. We now have a lot more options for people to pursue. Uh, there are different integrated Ah, uh, treatment models that are that are being tracked, and research is being conducted, you know on those, very similar. To other, you know, disease model uh, issues, and I think these are all things that are in our favor right now. The wind is in our favor, and so that's why I really believe that we're at a very special time where we can start to talk about, you know, addiction and mental health and, and try to remove that stigma because that will lower the barrier. There are lots of treatment options for folks: residential, hospital-based, outpatient, 12-step meetings. But people are still afraid to raise their hand. We get this all the time. We generate thousands of calls a month for help, and. And a lot of the calls will end with, I'm afraid, I don't want my wife to know, my husband to know. I don't want uh, my parents to know. I don't want my, will my employer find out? You know, we're starting to get some protections now, you know, where you can raise your hand and say, I'm suffering, I need help. And you can go and get treatment and not lose your job those weren't in place you know even five years ago
0: earlier when you spoke you did mention something about you know, it's 2015 that's how I feel with this whole podcast if you're homosexual or you're gay and it's 2015 who cares and, and that's why I did start this podcast It's just that I'm an alcoholic and if you have a genetic predisposition to be an alcoholic or I feel it's the same way with being homosexual who cares it is what it is and Lee I am on the exact same team with you are we need to get rid of the social stigma Tell us more about the facilities you have and how we can learn more about Foundations Recovery. Tell us about the website, how people can learn more about the Heroes in Recovery, because I know there are no shortage of Heroes in Recovery. Where can we find more information about this?
2: Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, Foundation Recovery Network, we have uh, four uh, residential treatment centers we have one north of Atlanta called Black Bear Lodge. We have one in Memphis, Tennessee called the Oaks of La Paloma, one in Palm Springs, California called Michael's House, and, and one in uh, Malibu, California called the Canyon at Peace Park. We also have eight outpatient clinics, you know, spread out around the country, you know, San Diego, Los Angeles, Santa Monica, San Francisco, Memphis, two in Atlanta, Nashville. So we have a lot of treatment options, but the key thing is that you know we gener- you know we only have 322 beds and we're getting thousands of phone calls a month we can't help everybody that calls in and so one of our missions is that when somebody reaches out to us that we try to find them a place that fits, and we're not the best fit for everybody. You know, you may be calling in with with a specific case that, that that is not good for us to treat, and so we will want to refer that out. It may be a process addiction. You know, it could be sexual addiction or pornography, or you could be having a, an adolescent that's in your care, or maybe you're looking for a, a geriatric, a place for an older adult that may not fit with us. So. We have a lot of deep connections with uh, people in the field because we've participated in 11 federally funded studies over the years. So we feel like we have a lot of great connections with other companies and their treatment modalities because a dual diagnosis approach may not be for everybody. So, you know, that's one of the interesting things in this, in this industry is that we don't really take a competitive nature to it. Uh, when that person calls, the idea is we've got to find the right, the right opportunity for that person. You can't just slam them into a bed because that will, will generally work against you. You know, you're probably not going to want to be there. You're going to want to leave because, you know, all of our treatment is voluntary. And so we really try to meet people where they are. We use a lot of motivational interviewing, and we do a lot of family work because you can't just send somebody off for 30 days and expect they're going to be return fixed. You know, we're having to change and impact the whole family model. Um, and that takes a lot of dedication, you know, with the treatment team to get that done.
0: And Lee, you kind of hinted on that with your with your last answer there. But talk to me about when is it the right time to go to rehab. And what I'm referring to is I have met people that have gone to rehab 10, 20 times. Now, I want you to answer this, at, at, you know, your marketing hat off. And I think it's something like you just said, if they don't want to be there, then they're just gonna drink after the end of it. So when is the right time for somebody to go to rehab? I know that's a loaded question, but give me your yeah. thoughts on that.
2: Yeah, it's um you know I think a lot of people want want to hear me say, you know, well when they've hit bottom, you know, what is their real bottom? I hear that a lot in the industry. And there is there is no there is no easy answer, Paul. It is so individualized. I think that's why people who are listening to this, they've got to talk to um a multitude of professionals, they can't just rely on one voice. they have to get involved and they have to read, they have to do some research, and they've got to get on the phone and I think that you know this is you know choosing treatment is not buying is not like buying a car and Unfortunately, I think a lot of us think about it that way and i and what's funny is we wouldn't think about that if we had cancer or if we had AIDS. And so I always challenge people, even when they're calling us or asking me for a referral, I always say, listen, I would love to help you. Foundations would love to help you. I, th- I think we're, we're, we're a great option for many, many people. But you have to do your research. You have to get uh, medical professionals involved. You need to go tour. You need to meet who is going to be treating your loved one. You need to talk to alumni. And unfortunately, these are things that a lot of people in distress, maybe they're pressured, maybe they're worried that they don't have time on their side. So we understand that. But we really try to bring all those factors to bear when we're working with a potential patient.
0: Lee, you said multitude of professionals, and I've touched on that in previous podcast episodes. That's called your team, right? And can you tell me a little bit more about what a multitude of professionals might consist of, especially when somebody might have a dual diagnosis or a tri-diagnosis? I don't even know what the word Word for that is,
2: Sure. Well, you may have just invented a new term, Paul. I think that what, what we would like to see is that, you know, do you have a therapist? Is the therapist involved? You know, has there been any type of psychologist or psychiatrist involved? Is there a primary care physician? Is there a specialist that might have been involved? Is there somebody, is there a clergy involved? Is there an interventionist uh, involved? Or do we need to uh, connect you with an intervention that can come in and work with the family? I think that's the level we're talking about, you know, is there has there been, you know, hospitalization and do we have, you know, those folks that were involved? You can't I think a lot of people unfortunately they come home, we see this a lot when there's holidays, they see a disaster pending and they get on the phone and there's not that that 360. We're not being able to get the full story, the full picture. Mm-hmm. You know, we'll uncover it at some point, but boy, it's a lot easier if you can get every, everything together and those folks that are helping advise this person who is going? Who is seeking treatment or they're encouraging you get treatment, they've really got to be educated.
0: Now, when that multitude of professionals, the doctor says, yes, go to rehab, the therapist says, yes, the hospital staff, they say, yes, your friends and your family say, yes, but the person who actually will be going to rehab, they say, I think I got this. I think I can probably control my drinking or drug use on my own. What do you say to that person?
2: This is where an interventionist, A sober escort, a sober companion, a sober professional can really help. You know, we don't personally do interventions, but we know hundreds of interventionists that we work with over the years. That's the person that can kind of help be that coordinator. They can be on the ground working with the family and the professionals to bring them together uh, to intervene on this person. And there are so many exciting models now. Of course, you've got the classic Johnson model, uh, but a lot of people still think, that intervention is, you know, well, I'm going to hire somebody to kidnap my loved one. And, and, and you, you've got so many ifr- different models now, the invitational model, the arise model, the love first model, which are much which are which are bringing that family together, the professionals together uh, to be able to convince this person to come in willingly, to come in voluntarily and and to hopefully take it seriously, you know, to take this opportunity, you know, seriously. And I think that that's where when we use motivational interviewing at our facility, we truly are going to meet people where they are. Our CEO, Rob, he's an LCSW. He has a, he has a really great story. You know, when people come into treatment, a lot of times they want to say, you know what, I'm going to, I'm going to come in, but don't make me work those 12 steps. And, they, and the way we would approach that, Paul, is we'd say, you know, okay, nobody's going to make you work those 12 steps, but come in, be open, and then, you know, a week in – we invite them. Would you like to come, you know, to a 12-step meeting because you know your roommate Bill, you know, he's going to be sharing tonight. You know, would you do it for Bill? And they always say yes, I'll do it for Bill. And then they get there and they see the potential and the opportunity that that particular meeting, you know, can provide. And it's just a different way to engage and approach that patient and I think that's where the model has changed from the 60s and 70s you know to where we are today
0: it's funny you say the name Bill I feel like if your name is Bill or Bob your percentage of being an alcoholic is so much higher than a normal person with a different name Um, but you said one word it was called you said willingness and that is what I was hinting upon is if the person is not willing or in their own motivational forces to go because I've heard people say I'm going to go to rehab because my wife wants me to go because my family wants me to go and those are all threats of some kind say I will leave you unless you go to rehab and those usually don't work am I correct well uh,
2: yes but you have to figure out how to work with them so I think what we would say is that person who says I'm going to come here because my wife wants to get me off I want to get my wife off my back you know we would say you know what we can work with that that's a that's going to be an approach you know it's going to be one of the stages of change you know, and that's what, that's what you have to embrace. You have to embrace that, that, there, that people are in, they could be in that pre-contemplative state, that mm-hmm. that's one of the stages of change. And if that is what gets you in the door, we can meet you where you are. We can work with that, Paul. You know, we can come in and we can start to introduce them to a different uh, way of thinking about it. And I think that's where, when you look at treatment models from years ago, which, you know, many of them work for many people, but then they also, you know, fail for many people. What we've said is here's some new opportunities, uh, some new ways to look at it. And, and one of the things that I think that treatment has progressed is that we are now giving people some new psychological tools to deal with the cravings and with addiction that, we, that really weren't common, you know, 30 and 40 years ago.
0: Le- give me some hard factual numbers, right? And a lot of my listeners, they are thinking about going to rehab. And I was one of those. And when I say hard factual numbers, what I mean is what are the recovery rates? I know, I know there's an industry industry rate and your foundations recover. You guys have your own rates and tell me what people can expect. Cause I personally thought if I went to rehab, I would be cured for life. And that's not the case. So, so tell me about success rates unfortunately there is only one rate paul and i think
2: that's where a lot of the marketers you know have gotten into this space there are uh, federal guidelines that dictate how you do research and so whenever any of your listeners are looking at dealing with a treatment center potentially and they say we have a 80% success rate i, I would really i would really encourage your listeners to challenge them right? Because how do they define the word success? Because success is not a word that's used in in research, right? We don't use the word success rate. Mm-hmm. So what, what you have to look at, you have to find out what are their guidelines? Are they really doing research? Because we follow, because we've been involved in federally funded studies, you know, we have a very high threshold with our research team. And we have a dedicated research team that, that does uh, outcome follow-ups and we have for many, many years. And so what we are seeing is about a 60 percent, and again, we break it down, you, your listeners are encouraged to go to our website because we break it down you know, by the drug or by alcohol and if there's mental health conditions so they can see specifically. And we also break it down by facility. But in general, you're probably looking at about a 60% recovery or abstinence rate, which is kind of the standard right now They people deal with abstinence. You know, have you, have you drunk in the last, you know, uh, have you used in the last 30 days? Have you had a drink of alcohol in the last 30 days or 60 days or 90 days or whatever your follow-up is?
0: Now, is and that so abstinence rate, sorry, it, it, within 30 days or within a year?
2: Well, that's what I'm saying. We do. You have to. Re, you know, we've got different rates for different periods of time. But I think it, what what in general what you're looking at with, with a lot of what we are, are finding is 60% uh, post one year. But here here's the trick, though. You got to look at what those details. So that's 60% of the people that have chosen to be in our research study. So the numbers are probably slightly less than that because you probably have a lot of people not participating in research who have relapsed. So that's where you really, that we even challenge ourselves, that we're not saying that it's 60% of everybody that's been through treatment. These are 60% of the people that agree to continue being involved in our research study. And that is, and here's the shocking number. That's twice the national average, Paul. So that, that, you know, the, the, the industry has a long way to come, has a long way to go with abstinence rates, rates and reporting that.
0: And Lee, I saw on your website the the national rating, you know, the 30%, and then you're about 60%, and I hope I'm wrong and I hope you're right, I thought both of those numbers were extremely high, abstinence after one year. Just some brief research that I did, I saw it was like 15 to 18 to 20%. And I guess you answered that by saying, look who's in the research study. It's somebody yep. who after a year will answer their phone. If I was drinking, I'm, I'm not opening up the mail. I'm not I'm not returning phone calls and, and going in a willingness survey to say, oh, I did relapse and this is what happened. But I hope I'm wrong on that. And, and do you think it is around you said it is a little bit lower than 60% but you 58 or are you, are you are you think it might be like 40 or 30
2: all we can do is report you know what our research finds and we report how we how we do our research and that that's that's unfortunate. you know that's that's all you can do is look at at, at how we approach it and what I encourage your listeners to do is they have to ask these kind of challenging questions to anybody they're dealing with. And any company that's not willing to give them the, uh, you know, their outcomes measurements, know what they are legitimately and then how they actually came to them you know that's probably somebody who's not really doing really good research and there are a lot of companies out there that participate uh, in federal studies and that's really and they have to publish their research and when you and when you look at foundations you know you'll look at our research we are published in peer-reviewed journals we'll also do the marketing white papers to you know to give synopsis but you know if your research is not standing up to scrutiny you know in peer-reviewed medical journals then it's really not worth anything. And that's where I'm always, when people are asking me questions, I'm always encouraging them, you've got to go and research and, and really get to, to find these, these treatment professionals, you know, who are following the latest guidelines, the latest studies, and, and not just giving you hocus pocus or not just giving you fluffy, you know, uh, you know options that may, that may not work. We're working with proven, a lot of people like to say they're evidence-based, but they really have got to prove it.
0: To summarize, you know, there are good rehab facilities, there are bad rehab facilities, but Recovery Elevator, I think I've got one of the good ones on the show with us. Lee, before we part, give listeners just some parting piece of guidance who are thinking about sobering up and getting into rehab. Well, I think
2: that Krista Gilbert, who is our who is our who runs our Michaels House facility in Palm Springs, you know, when I first met her and we were we were working with expanding that facility and adding you know a male wing one of the things that she's really passionate about is that being in recovery does not mean adopting a monastic lifestyle and that has really stayed with me as i've as i've worked in this industry for a long time and got to meet some of my best friends you know are in recovery and we are constantly trying to remind people that you can have fun in recovery that life can be better than it's ever been you know in recovery and i think that's where a lot of people they get lost in saying that I'm having such a great time, I'm living the life, You know, why, why would I want to give up drinking or give up using? And I think that we're, we're trying to educate folks that we are not living a monastic lifestyle, that we are having a lot of really great fun, that we are impacting uh, families and, and people's lives in, in a positive way. And this is what the message that we constantly take To legislators that we take to the community with our heroes events and why they should be embracing um, the recovery community. Because if we can get that message out and share that message, I think that will encourage people to say, you know what, maybe it's time for me to to ask for some help.
0: Lee, fantastic stuff. There will be links to Foundations Recovery Network on the show notes for episode 16 on the recoveryelevator.com website. Lee, thank you so much for joining us today.
2: Hey, Paul, thank you so much. I really appreciate the opportunity.
0: The whole rehab thing is something that is foreign to me. And to tell you the truth, I'm kind of happy about that. The success rates of 60% seem very high. But Lee, he didn't really skirt around the subject. He was very transparent and said, 60% is coming from the people who are responding, right? And like I said, if I relapsed, if I was drinking, I'm not going to be answering the phone call from the rehab facility that I that I let down or respond to that envelope that says postage attached Just send back, I'm not going to fill out the questionnaire. If I'm relapsing, the last thing I'm thinking about is going to tell you guys. But from what I have deduced and heard from other people, the most important part about rehab is you've got to be willing to go. You've got to hit some sort of quote, air quotes right here, bottom. And that's what I hit on September 6th. September 7th, something changed. I had to change, and I made a change. If I'd have gone to rehab... It would have been great because I was ready to go. It just so happened that I didn't go. But I guarantee it, if my parents had picked up at a different time and I said, I got to go to rehab, I probably would have been at rehab in the next two or three days. I am so lucky to have such a fantastic family, parental units, my brother around me. I don't know how I would have done this without them. So if they're listening, thank you so much. Recovery Elevator, next week we have Lalea on the podcast. She is from Canada. She's been sober a little over a month. We had a quite slip up, but not with alcohol, with something else. And she'll tell you about that. If you'd like to become part of the Recovery Elevator private Facebook group, again, this is private. Nobody can see what anybody posts in it. Just search on the Facebook bar up top, Recovery Elevator. Click on the group one. We have a page. Go ahead and like it if you want. We've got a group. Just ask to be in it. And I personally, I'm going to approve that. I'm in this group all the time. It is a tool for myself that I use daily to stay sober. Recovery elevator, you took the elevator down. You got to take the steps back up. You can do this.